Hey, this is John Peters and Yoli, and you are listening to Misery Point Radio. Let's go. Wanderers, thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. As always, I appreciate you dragging yourselves through the desolation to join me here in the wasteland. And even though I normally press charges against my online stalkers, such as yourselves, y'all get a pass today because I can't really blame you for wanting to be here. I mean, if I was you, I'd probably do the same thing because it is an irrefutable fact that I have the absolute best guests on this show. The best musicians, the best filmmakers, the best writers, the best actors, and the best Ghostbusters. Yes, you heard me right. Joining me today is an amazing entertainer named Jean-Pierre Gignoli. Most recently, he received accolades for his role in the hit film Ford vs. Ferrari, but really his passions span multiple industries. In addition to being an accomplished actor, Jean-Pierre is also an acclaimed hip-hop artist, stand-up comic, DJ, and impressionist. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a bona fide doctor of parapsychology, which, in my humble opinion, makes him an official modern-day Ghostbuster. And we all know my opinion is really all that matters. Fight me. I had an absolute blast talking to Jean-Pierre about his impressive career and his personal journeys that led him to where he is today. We discussed his pivotal role in Ford vs. Ferrari, his newly released music video, and of course, what has driven his lifelong passion of investigating paranormal phenomena, so much so that he set up his company as a nonprofit and works diligently to validate his work and provide closure to those on both sides of the veil. And let me tell you, this dude is for real and very passionate about his beliefs and his goals in life. And yet, he is still incredibly humble. Such a cool dude. Such an awesome conversation. I'm excited to share this with you. So, hop out of that Ferrari, grab your Proton Pack, and welcome to Misery Point Radio, Jean-Pierre Gignoli. Uh, Hey, Jean-Pierre, welcome to Misery Point Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely awesome to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate you. Yeah, for sure. You know, your your bio is, of course, pretty epic. I mean, uh, not that I ever judge people on a, a list of quote-unquote credentials or accomplishments, but, I mean, you're an entertainer, but let's just kind of break this down for a second. Actor slash rapper slash comedian slash impressionist slash DJ slash paranormal investigator. I think you might be missing some stuff, though. There's not enough on that list. Uh, you need to squeeze a few more <laughs> in there just to kind of uh, round out the stuff. So, uh, you know, like maybe, I don't know, self-realizing AI. <laughs> you could be, you know, on yeah. that level. Overlord of entertainment, something like that. Yeah, I definitely do a lot. Got a lot of passion. Yeah. Got to put it somewhere. <laughs> Dude, you know, with all the crazy stuff in the world, you know, current situations, of course, aside, just always the crazy stuff in the world. I always find that the one thing that really kind of ties people together is creativity and inspiration and kind of art. And you've got your hands kind of in all those kind of pots. So uh, we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff today as much as we can. I also, though, wanted to ask you about your name because your name is pretty badass. It's got this kind of French or Belgian Jean-Pierre and then uh, Gignoli clearly is Italian or something related to that. So how do you get that awesome mix? Uh, well, I found out more about my heritage more recently. My father came back into my life after not being in my life for a long time. And I didn't really know about his side that much growing up. Uh, so my dad's from Argentina, but he's uh, French, Italian, indigenous from Argentina. Oh, wow. And then my mom's side is more uh, Italian side. So, uh, yeah, I got a nice mix of uh, cultures in me. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, uh, I, I kind of always – I don't know what it is with me, but I have this thing with names. And sometimes – I like the fact that, you know, your your name is just kind of like just a sexy, suave kind of thing. But you've got your hands in like in rap and then in film. And sometimes people might look at your name on paper and go, I don't know what this guy does. But then they see you. So it kind of breaks those molds of, of perception, which I, I absolutely love that. So, well, I, you know, I don't really know where to start with all this stuff. But since I'm a music guy and you're a music guy, let's talk about some music for a second. Um, you're big into hip hop. And you go by is, is MC Pierre. Is that kind of your your music name? 
Correct. MC Pierre is the name. Tell us about your introduction to music. I mean, I've, I've read a little bit of your history, so I'm kind of familiar that this goes back a long way with you, but I'd really love to kind of get the story on how this came into your life. Yeah, definitely. Of course. So um, it really began at a very young age. I just, uh, whenever I heard music, it didn't matter. I know my uncle had a ton of like weird, like polka music and different things. And whenever I heard it, and I don't remember this, but my family told me I used to just dance and get excited and, and really love music. Um, and then uh, I rem- it was around the time the Michael Jackson Bad Album came out. Mm. My uncle, by chance, found a cassette tape on the ground and brought it home. And just it chilling on the Michael ground? Jackson. Yeah, just chill on the ground. Somebody dropped it, lost it, whatever. <laughs> um, and my uncle comes home with this tape, cassette tape. He's like, I found this on the ground. I don't really know what it is. And, you know, threw it in my cassette player and I fell in love. Like, I listened to that cassette tape till it didn't work anymore. Had one of those little portable players. Um, you know, it was the 80s. Those were popular. <laughs> right, yeah, I had one Carried of those. it around and just listened to that album nonstop. Fell in love with Michael Jackson. Went back and listened to his old stuff. And I learned all these dance moves. I used to imitate them kind of in private. I was kind of shy when I was younger. So it was more for like family and friends. I would like watch the bad music video and imitate every single dance move. And everybody was like, dang, like he's good. Um, <laughs> and I think that's really where I gravitated. I just loved music. My mom really listened to K-Earth 101 growing up out here in California. And they played oldies from the 50s and 60s, R&B, soul, rock. It didn't matter all, all of the genres they played. And I just love that music. I fell in love with a lot of the artists and a lot of the music. And, uh, you know, that's kind of just, I clung to music really a lot. And that's what just gave me a passion for music. And then uh, it really became personal for me uh, when I joined choir in junior high. I was, like I said, I was very introverted and shy when I was younger. And a counselor suggested I do an extracurricular. So I ended up joining choir. And I was very shy. I was scared to do it, but I did it anyway. And, strangely as as shy and introverted as I was performing was very natural for me when I got on a stage it also helped that I was in a group of people I didn't get all the attention so (laughs) I didn't feel as nervous I was like okay I can hide my voice you know among everyone else is by matching the tones and stuff um but yeah I felt very natural performing and people said I was good and that just kind of like started there and growing up in Long Beach California I grew up around rap and hip-hop and just hearing it all over the place, my parents weren't too keen because there was a lot of gangster rap on the West Coast. Sure. And, you know, it was definitely a lot of negative stuff. But my parents were just like, look, just know that it's don't take what they're saying. Literally, it doesn't mean you have to do all that. You can enjoy the music without it affecting you and your behavior. So um, so I just, yeah, I started really like 96, I want to say, uh, was around the time we finally got cable in the home and MTV was popular and all the, <laughs> I saw bone thugs and harmony and a lot of these rap artists. And I just, I really, I think I connected with rap in particular because I grew up in an area that wasn't the best area. There was gang violence, drugs, um, you know, a lot of stuff going on that I heard in the music and I related to, I'm like, wow, it sounds like my neighborhood. Like this isn't really that, that far fetched for me. Cause I live in a neighborhood that's like that and you have to be careful. And you don't want to go out at night sometimes because, you know, there's, there's you know, shady people around the block. So um, I think I just connected because I understood what they were talking about. And I've always had like, I always call myself kind of an imitator or regurgitator where I can see things and hear things and imitate them. And rap was one of those things that I just kind of started writing privately to myself and was like, oh, you know, I'm kind of good at this, like whatever, you know, and it was kind of a private thing. But in high school, I had uh, a poetry assignment in an English class. And uh, I ended up writing a bunch of rhymes in it, you know, not intentionally, but it's just how my mind worked at the time. And my teacher actually gave me full credit on the project, even though it wasn't correct. She said it was so clever and entertaining that she's giving me full credit. She wants me to redo it the way she wanted me to do it. But she still gave me full credit and said, you entertained me with this poem. Like, I, I don't know how you're so clever, but, you know, you really stood out because your assignment was completely different than everybody else's. Yeah. And word sped, spread throughout the school. Everybody heard that, oh, you know, it was more of a rap, you know, and everybody was like, dude, you're a rapper, you know, and I was still introverted and shy back then. So I still stayed kind of low key. Um, and the way I was writing outside of that assignment was what I knew, which was like the gangster rap type of stuff. But I felt it didn't represent me very well because, you know, as much as I know that lifestyle, I never really partook in it. And even my friends who did it kept me out of it because they said, like, you're a good dude. Like, I don't mess up your life. Like, don't get involved in this stuff. Um, so that, you know, that was a blessing in itself. 
Um, and then in college, I was finally introduced to a lot of underground hip hop from the East Coast. And it was more conscious, political. They talked about social issues. And it clicked with me. My friend introduced me to Immortal Technique, one of my biggest inspirations in rap and just a great artist and human being all together, all around. And it, it, that's the moment I realized I have to do this and make music with a message that that's just something powerful, but it's also clever, creative, artistic, and all those aspects that I put into it. And the great thing is, I feel like I have my own tone of voice, my own way of expressing myself. So I don't really copy any artists. You really hear my music as its own thing. And I do get comparisons, but they're always pulled back. Like, well, you know, you kind of sound like this person, but you really don't. You kind of like, you kind of have your own thing. And I think that's really cool. You said it earlier, actually, about me, my name being Jean-Pierre and kind of breaking the mold. And that really is me as a rap artist. I don't dress like a typical rap artist. I don't look like a typical rap artist. When I step on a stage and perform, especially when, you know, I do it consistently, most of the time, the reaction when I step on a stage is like, who's this guy? Right. Like, he's going to rap. Like, it's really like they don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> um, and uh, then they're blown away. He's like, wow, this dude's a lyricist. He can rap. You know, it's like he knows he knows what's up. So I, I get I get that shock value from a lot of the, the people who don't know me as an artist. Um, and it's, it's a great feeling. So, yeah, dude, that's a killer story. I, and I absolutely love the the concept of shock value to kind of wake people up a little bit, which is I mean, I play metal and but right now, I mean, I, I look pretty corporate. -y. I mean, I, I have a, a pretty chill day job and you know i go about my my daily life but then when i dig into music you know I, I i like some pretty brutal stuff but there's something in common with for instance the metal industry and then with hip-hop industry they're not always perceived to be the most accepting of of those that maybe look different what was your experiences with that i mean you kind of touched on it a little bit but did you have problems when you started to actually perform of people taking you seriously before they actually heard you? Were they like, come on, do you look at you? Um, somewhat. Yeah. Uh, you definitely encounter that no matter what. And me, um, I was raised to be Italian. Uh, obviously you can talk about my name and I'm part Italian, but I really have much more heritage in me and a lot of Spanish in me actually, mm -hmm. uh, that I found out through doing the 23 and me and all that, but definitely not being, specific obviously my name was different so that obviously stood out to people right um you know I, i'm not i look hispanic and i am very spanish actually in my heritage but people didn't know that um so i definitely had that factor where people question me but uh i think it's with anything you do uh, when you work at it and you prove yourself people start to respect you and take you serious and that's really what happened i started out in the underground los angeles uh, battle rap scene and that's really where you prove yourself. You put in the work. I went up against some of the best battlers on Los Angeles underground scene. And even if I didn't win a battle, I got a lot of respect because I could hold my own against some of the best freestyle rappers. That means we're not coming up premeditated written material. We're going on a stage and we're rapping against someone we may not even know. And we have to like make fun of them based on how they look. If you do know some stuff, use that against them and you do it off the top of your head. So you're not premeditated in any way. Yeah, this is like a uh, picture for those of you that aren't familiar. Picture like uh, Eminem Eight Mile kind of a vibe, where they've got yes. this whole setup and there's clubs, and it's it's part about showing off your talent. It's part about talking shit and getting getting your opponents riled up because that draws that raw emotion. Sometimes it gets nasty, <laughs> but it at the does, end of the yeah. day, I, I think even if you completely offend somebody during a battle, a lot of times people would come out and be like, dude you just threw it down like absolutely nuts. And then there's a, a mutual level of respect. So uh, that's a tough scene to do that. And you also had a little bit of background, you know, I don't know if it was related to that, but you also did some, some kind of improv stuff. So clearly you are able to thrive in that environment where you're just having to be reactionary and think off the top of your head. And that's, a, that's a big acting thing too, is, you know, you're sucking in all of the stimulus to be able to, you know, respond in genuine ways. So did you like doing that or was it just something you felt was necessary to get you to that next step? Um, it was a little bit of both at the time. I think I was discovering who I was as a person at the same time. Um, and it just felt like part of it, but I also really enjoyed it at the time. Uh, but I think now that I've become much more aware of the person I am, I probably wouldn't do rap battling because I feel like creating music and, and having something tangible uh, is more important to me. But at the time, yeah, it meant a lot to me. And I really did it. I really put a lot of time into it and effort and practice. 
Um, so yeah, at the time, I definitely think it meant a lot to me and I took it very serious. Now I wouldn't see myself as a battler. I have a whole new philosophy of life. Uh, I don't believe I'm competing with anybody. I don't believe competition is really meaningful because if we're all truly individuals, you can't compete with anyone else because I'm an individual as you are an individual. And uh, competing is, is almost pointless because you can never compete and be, you can only be you and I can only be me. So that's kind of how I, my new life philosophy is like that. Right. Uh, but back then I had to prove myself. I was dealing with a lot in life and uh, it definitely took time and effort and I really enjoyed it with time that I did it. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I really was listening to some of your stuff before we, before we got on today. And I think when you mentioned the fact that, you know, this was a time during the nineties when you were kind of starting this, this journey with this particular kinds of music. And that was really when, yeah, the gangster rap or the urban rap was kind of in its heyday it was really the, at the forefront. But aside from the lyrical content and things like that, I think one of the things that that style of hip hop was known for was this very melodic, right? It incorporated a lot of keyboards and guitars and drums. And there was a lot of, it was, a lot of it was electronic, but it had something that you could carry along. I came from the time of like, you know, run DMC and two life crew. And it was very bare bones and beatbox and stuff like that. So you took the elements that were popular at the time and then you kind of switch the message out to incorporate more kind of inspiring, positive things. Now, do you write your own music and beats and stuff like that as well? Um, sometimes I do. It depends on where I'm at usually because I do so many things and sometimes my focus changes. Sometimes life throws wrenches in your way. Oh, yeah. uh, most of my life is in storage right now. So um, I don't produce as much. But there was a time where I was mostly producing and writing and doing all of that. So I do produce my own stuff and I have stuff I have produced. Um, I haven't done it a lot lately because it's just the way life is. But yeah, I definitely produce my own music, create. Um, I, I pretty much uh, do it kind of freehand with my keyboards when I produce stuff or, or drums or whatever I add to uh, my musical production. Uh, but I, I have enough uh, experience with music theory as well, but I'm very much an audio guy. I sound, I like I just play around with sounds and see what I like, and I, I build from that. Yeah, and do you collaborate with other musicians when you're, say, working on on albums or projects? Um, I do at times. Uh, it all depends. One of the most difficult things when you really take this stuff seriously is it's hard to find people who really take it seriously. I find most people see it as a hobby. So we'll get together, we'll work on some projects, we'll record a couple songs, and eventually they fall off and they're like, oh, I got to spend time with my girl. I got to do this. I got to do that. And then I find myself just on my own again. So it, it does happen, but it seems like it's a lot less frequent because I feel like people don't realize how much time and effort it takes to really pursue something if you want to achieve it on a, on a large scale. Like it, it takes a lot of work and time. And I feel like people are just like, especially in America in particular, we're very much like the now <laughs> generation of people where it's like, I have it on my phone. I press a button. It's there. Instant gratification. I, yes. The instant gratification uh, mentality. And I'm, I'm very much not like that. I feel like sometimes the more time you take, the better something comes out. So I don't mind taking time with things, sitting down, even sometimes leaving it alone and then coming back to it later. And you, and then you find yourself more inspired or you come up with something that, if you got stuck, you couldn't have done before. So, so I think, yeah, there's too much of that. People just want results, results, results. But I think true creativity and art takes time and it's good to spend time with it. Yeah. Also, you know, when you're a creative alpha, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, and you want to control the outcome of your project, there's tons of people that are willing to get involved and they want to hang out with you, but there's no level of any kind of accountability because people just look at it like, well, you know, I'm doing you a favor and you can't really press them on the issues, right? It's like they don't owe it to you. I mean, <laughs> so definitely tough yeah. when you're collaborating with people that, like you said, it's either a hobby or, or a project or just something they're doing to pass that particular moment in time. Well, you just recently released uh, a new video for how many? Tell us about that video and the song and kind of, uh, you know, how that project came to become to light today. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a bigger project um, than I initially thought. Um, I had bought some beats off this company that sells beats because at the time I was in a process of a move, so I didn't really have my production studio up. And uh, I was going to work on a project, and I ended up meeting this lady who lost her son to gun violence. 
and they don't they never got justice they are the police didn't tell them the information they didn't investigate it properly they don't know how their son was killed why it happened all they told her was wrong place wrong time um and she heard my music and saw that it was very deep and heartfelt and talked about social issues and serious issues and we said that well she's she built a whole um a whole project for her son called the encouragement project where they try and talk to, you know, communities that are dealing with violence and things like that and trying to get legislation passed for gun laws and more protections for people. And, uh, I said, yeah, we should, we could work on something together. And, uh, I ended up writing this album around the time my life was in a whirlwind. I sat down and wrote it. And ironically, I wrote most of it on this weekend that, um, I don't remember it was, it was 2019 where one of the big shootings actually took place. And it was really weird because it, it was able to really fit into the, this album I'm writing. Um, the, the title's tentatively up in the air, but I wanted to release the single. I have a Sony music producer I apprenticed under, and he helps me out. So I sent him a couple of the tracks and just wanted to get his opinion. And he heard how many and said, man, that song brought me to tears. It really spoke to what's happening in the world right now. And uh, it, it's about loss. It's about the, the senseless violence we put upon each other. It touches on even police brutality and, and overreach of power a little bit. Um, and it's just a very heartfelt song about, about loss and violence. And uh, yeah, that, as soon as he heard it, he said, you need to get this out fast. Like it's really, it's poignant at this point in time. And it's, I can't stop listening to it. You need to release this soon. So I pretty much mixed and mastered and got the whole album done and uh, wanted to release this song, How Many, right now, just to get it out, to kind of give a taste of the album. And then in the fall, I'm going to be releasing the entire album, which uh, the title is going to have something to do with justice. But it's also going to mention this lady's son who was killed through gun violence, like because he inspired the album. And uh, I talk a lot about just a lot of the corruption in our justice system in America, gun violence, uh, the inaction with all the violence and the corruption and the crime and, and brutality and how we don't seem to solve the issues and just continue to, to fight with each other and never solve these problems. So that's really the kind of whole idea. And I think how many says that in a more deep and emotional way. Yeah. And are you releasing this on an independent label? Uh, I'm, I'm doing it all myself. So it's, it's, it's my own release, just my own independent label. I think it's really cool because it's not like super preachy. It's just like, hey, check this out. This is happening. So I like the way you did it. It was very informative and it was very... Uh, I mean, it's just kind of in your face, you know, it just kind of makes you think. So I think right now we're going to check that song out. And so here it is. This is How Many. You know, I just wonder how many more we got to lose before things change. How many mothers got to cry and how many got to die before we realize this ain't no way to live a life. People screaming at the sky, staying up late at night, trying to ask they got why. God, why? How many children gotta die and how many will survive Until we see the problem and we try to make it right Cause these shootings keep occurring, no solutions inside No solutions inside So much senseless loss of life and it happens all the time Many kids, moms and wives never got to say goodbye Cause of how the bullets fly in the streets late at night Kids they bleed and they die over selfish male pride And the anger trapped inside these young people who relied on a system that is lied and cannot really provide for the people living in it all it does is set your limits tell you that you never finish gang life you in it make you feel like you fitting and you're gonna go and kill it grab a gat to prove you with it you just put yourself in prison need to stop look and listen cause it's us we are killing and we can't continue with this it's vicious how many mothers gotta cry and how many gotta die before we realize this ain't no way to live a life people screaming at the sky staying up late at night trying to ask they got why God, why? How many children gotta die and how many will survive Until we see the problem and we try to make it right Cause these shootings keep occurring, no solutions inside No solutions inside Mothers, please don't blame yourselves Cause you have raised your kids in hell Work two jobs and pay the bills Come home late and make the meals 
fathers too Propers do I have not forgotten you I know that this bothers you You have suffered losses too But you have no way to show it Tell us man cannot be open That is when we lose our focus And we feel lost and hopeless That's what keeps the barrel smoking Bodies dropping streets are soaked in blood All from this supreme lack of love And guess who's responsible? It's us And if we keep the current path we're on We're done How many mothers gotta cry And how many gotta die Before we realize this ain't no way to live a life People screaming at the sky Staying up late at night Trying to ask they God why God why How many children gotta die And how many will survive Until we see the problem And we try to make it right Cause these shootings keep occurring No solutions inside No solutions inside It's an ongoing war And it's right outside our doors Politicians they ignore When the bodies hit the floor Whether it's inside a school Or a cop's excessive force They always seem like They just can't do anymore Rich men thinking Let the poor kill the poor And while the ship's sinking They can take even more Tell us that praying Is the way to change the course I am just saying That we gotta do more it really is a cool song, though, dude. I, I listened to it probably three or four times this morning. So uh, I was like, ah. This awesome. Thank every, you so much. Yeah, I appreciate every, it. Yeah, every it's, time it's... I watched it, I was get, getting something new. And, you know, I, I like all kinds of music. I, I mean, I have my preferences. But I just thought, yeah, that, yeah this, is, this, is really, this is really well done. It's timely. It's poignant, like you said. But it's just, you know, for what it is, if you take even the messages out of everything, it's just a really well-constructed song. So, uh, yeah, props to you on that one. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've definitely come into my own as an artist over the years. And and I think that's what comes out when you practice your craft. Yeah. So how many albums do you have out now? Is there's the one you're getting ready to release? You had a, a piece of work out previously, and I didn't get a chance to check that out yet. Uh, yeah, basically, it was a free album I put out because I used samples and stuff. I didn't want to deal with the legalities, oh, yeah. especially since uh, I worked at Disneyland for 10 years. And the album is about what it's really like to work at Disney. <laughs> I really call them out on a lot of the way they conduct their business, uh, especially towards their employees. Um, and uh, yeah, I just kind of put it out there. So uh, I made a couple music videos for it to promote it as well. And you can find it for free on Bandcamp, on my Bandcamp site. MC Pierre, I have it. Uh, some of the songs up on my SoundCloud as well. Uh, so that was really the first major release I just kind of put out there to have some content, kind of show what I'm about, what I do. Um, and then right now I have three albums I'm working on. So the one that I'm going to release, the songs are all done, but I have some skits and some uh, voice stuff I'm going to do about uh, the, this, uh, this lady's son who passed away. Um, so that's the last thing I have to do for the album before I release it. I'm currently writing and almost done writing a whole album about the paranormal. So I rap about ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, all kinds of stuff. Oh, dude. And I took on that. It's a, a passion project I've been wanting to do for a long time. And with uh, the whole quarantine thing, I said, you know what? I'm going to make the most of this and I'm going to write this album and get it done. Um, and even I have bigger plans for whenever I can really release it and put it out. And I want to do what's called a ghost tour and actually tour only haunted venues and do like a VIP experience where you investigate the actual venues with me either before or after the show. So I, I have like big, really big plans I want to do with that album. Dude, that's outside of the box thinking right there. That's pretty epic. Um, since you brought it up and we're going to talk about it anyway, let's just move into that then. So you have had a lifelong passion for parapsychology, for things of the paranormal. And this goes back to a childhood event where I think you really kind of felt something's different about this. This is not something that's just, uh, uh, you couldn't describe it. So kind of walk us through that first experience you had with the paranormal. And then from there, how that kind of led into you starting an entire business around it. Yeah, definitely. Of course. Uh, so yeah, I was two years old. Uh, I went to stay at my grandmother's, which was a common thing. There was nothing strange about it. I did it all the time, sure. but this particular time, uh, I woke up in the wee early morning hours. I don't remember what time. And I saw my grandfather who had passed away when I was three months old. So I didn't really know what he looked like, uh, besides pictures. Didn't have any uh, official he, memory of him. Exactly. Uh, but he appeared how he looked in one of the pictures that was like, you know, very prominent in the house. Um, it sounded like he was trying to talk to me, but I couldn't hear him. He was like, he was, uh, he was a full apparition. I could see all his details, but he was also glowing like white and transparent. And when he realized I freaked out, started crying, 
he um he was in a wheelchair because that's the the picture I saw of him. He wheeled out into the living room and disappeared through the wall. As scared as I was, I actually chased after him and watched him disappear through the wall. Uh, and it was on the way to my grandmother's room. So I ran to her room crying, told her I saw grandpa, all this kind of stuff. No, no, in Italian. Um, and she said, oh, it was just a bad dream. Just your imagination. You could just sleep with me tonight. Don't worry. My mom built the same story and said, oh, you know, it's just a bad dream. Don't worry about it. Um, and I actually started experiencing a lot of things after that. But because my family said they didn't believe me, I figured if my family doesn't believe me, nobody else is going to believe me. So I just kind of like, kind of shut down. But I saw stuff ev almost everywhere I went. I saw people that weren't there. Other people weren't noticing what was I was noticing. And I kind of stayed quiet. Well, eight years later, they finally sat me down and said, hey, look, we didn't want to scare you. You were very little. But we've seen stuff too. My grandma, before she came here from Italy, she experienced a ton of stuff in Italy even stuff when she came out here to the U.S. My mom even grew up here, but experienced a lot of paranormal stuff. And they kind of alluded to the fact that we're all sensitive to this kind of stuff. And then there's like a bloodline in our family that's known to like experience the paranormal. And that really clicked with me and it really drove my interest up, up to crazy heights. I was like, well, I want to know about this stuff now. Plus, I, I assume it made you feel like, well, God damn it, I'm not crazy. Yes, exactly. It felt it made me feel more validated and like uh, like uh, yeah, I wasn't crazy and I wasn't imagining things, but it, this is something that is real to me at least and to other people. Um, so you know, and this was in the '90s again too, around the same time that I got into like rap and music. So um, there wasn't a lot of internet, there wasn't TV shows. You know, there were a few. There was like X Files, Sightings was on Fox, and they they had like UFOs and. And Man, ghosts and sightings. Stuff. I haven't thought about that yeah. show in years. Yeah. Um, Unsolved Mysteries would do supernatural episodes. And uh, so that's where I got most of the the media, like audio visual stuff. But for the most part, I just had my parents buy me lots of books on whether it was ghost stories, haunted places, all kinds of stuff. And I just really, really got fascinated by it and wanted to study it and learn more. And uh, my interest just grew over the years. And I always was interested in it and studied it and experienced it quite often. Um, whether it was in my own home or when I went places. So that continued throughout my life. And then finally in high school, I met my best friend and, uh, I was, we were talking and I said, yeah, you know, I'm always interested in the paranormal, like the ghosts and haunted stuff. Like it's really cool. And UFOs even and Bigfoot and all. And he's like, you know, I like that stuff too, man, but I've never like looked into it. And I was like, you know what we should do? We should like try and look for haunted places out here in California and go check them out. And even one of our English teachers who liked us a lot uh, helped us craft letters to like the Queen Mary and all these famous locations. <laughs> and we asked if we could go in there and investigate or check it out. And uh, we just started really taking it serious. And by the time I started going to college, I started taking psychology classes and was always interested in parapsychology. So eventually in 2009, I earned my PhD in parapsychology. We started our official group, paranormal group, the Southern California Paranormal Detectives in the year 2000. And it takes years to prove yourself. So in 2013, we finally got our official 501c3 nonprofit status after building our resume and all that. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a quick overview of, of getting into it and our interest and building the team and, you know, doing what we do now. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I know that you're uh, a fan of Ghostbusters and now you officially have the Peter Venkman degree which is <laughs> super epic. Um, you know, and you look at that, and I know that you face this, speaking of adversity, but, you know, there's people out there that are like, dude, you're full of shit. This is just a bunch of BS. This whole field is, is a pile of nothingness. So, number one is, do you feel the need to even validate it? Or is this just something you're like, you know what, man? You believe what you believe, and I'm going to keep on pursuing this, this avenue. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, it's very much more, uh, I'm a passionate man who does things that he loves. And you, no matter what, I've been through a lot of adversity trying to go after my dreams, sure. and it's never stopped me from going after it. So the one cool thing about me is I'm a very open-minded and respectful person of people's beliefs. Um, I actually have skeptics that get more interested in the paranormal because of the way I approach it. I'm not here trying to prove to anybody that it's real. I'm interested and want to study it and find out more about it because I'm, I'm a, a searcher of knowledge. I love to learn things. I'm a history buff, so the paranormal gives me a lot of that because I'm able to research the history of locations, uh, incidents that happen, 
you know, and I, I think it's fascinating. So I get to I get to really do the things I love. And because the way I approach it again, um, I lectured at Chapman University for five years in the sociology department and uh, explained what I did as a paranormal investigator and parapsychologist. And the, I, the first time I ever lectured there, first day class, um, a student raised their hand. I have free form lecture style. So I say, ask questions if you want. It's fine if you interrupt me. We'll continue going. Uh, the first question I got, this girl raises her hand and she goes, why do I trust you more than religion? And I was like, <laughs> that is the best question I've ever been asked in my entire life. Nothing has topped it. But to try and answer it in a, in a illegitimate sense, I said, it's because I'm not pushing anything on you. I'm not, not telling agenda. you this is real. Yeah. I'm not telling you this is real and you have to believe it. I'm telling you this is what I do. This is why I do it. And that's the facts. Whether you believe it or not is not very important to me. It's just, it's about me pursuing the things I'm passionate about and, you know, just telling people my knowledge. So initially, initially this is a self-enrichment project that you've done, but over the course of doing this, have you found instances where you have actually helped people out with things that they've encountered in life? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm definitely very much an empath on a spiritual level and an empath on a human level, meaning that I understand people's struggles. Even if I haven't gone through what people have gone through, I'm very good at listening to what they've gone through and trying to understand that. And I think that's something humanity lacks in a lot of ways. And I think just to show up and show that you're concerned and you may have some knowledge on a subject helps people. And then on a deeper level, yeah, definitely have helped lots of people. People feel comforted when I speak to them. I have a calm voice, even in the, in the face of like, like scary things. I usually still maintain my composure and don't freak out. And that usually helps keep people calm. So, um, you know, and we've cleansed homes and my wife's uh, indigenous Native American from the Navajo Nation. Um, she use, has used sage to cleanse homes. Some people are religious and they call in their religions to help with that aspect, but they appreciate that we came in. We validated their experiences and made them feel like they're not crazy, like we talked about earlier. So on a larger scale, I did it for myself. And then now because I did it for myself, I can do it for others. In your experience, I'm curious about this element of, so you go into an area that's got some activity happening and you conduct your investigations, you, you know, report on your findings and this and that, and you kind of get to the bottom of the story, if you will. In your opinion, do you think that the people you're helping get more out of it or the maybe restless spirits get their sense of closure as well? Um, I definitely think it's on both sides. Uh, I think most people, even today, it's, it's widely accepted now, the paranormal, a lot more than it used to be, but it's still a taboo subject. Sure. Uh, but, but I would say that the spiritual world and the physical world, in my theory at least, is that they're intertwined and they influence each other. So I would say on both ends that, that it helps both sides. It, yes, it does help the people and the way we approach it, it helps the spirits as well because we're getting those people to understand the spiritual side of things. And then usually their behavior changes based on what we've told them as well. So, yeah, I definitely think it influences both sides. Yeah. Have you and, and people, do they call you or do you kind of seek out the situations? Um, yeah, no, we definitely have people reach out to us either through email, through phone, and uh, they usually contact us early on. We we were the ones who usually contacted mostly like famous locations or, or more public spaces to go investigate and kind of like just do it and do research. Um, and then once we established ourselves and got known, uh, then people started contacting us. You know, we're listed on a lot of uh, the big paranormal websites on the Internet. So people find us through there, especially if they're local to Southern California. Um, and we've built a pretty good reputation. We always help people. We're always very sincere and earnest when we deal with our clients. Um, and we don't we don't play we don't play games. We're not there to for fame or anything. We're trying to actually help people. So. Yeah. Well, you set up the company as a, as a nonprofit. Um, is this something that you did because you wanted people to think that you weren't in to kind of scam them out of anything? Um, not necessarily. It's, uh, I feel like I do a lot of things and I, you could, I could potentially make a lot of money with a lot of the things I do. And I've made money from music. I made money from comedy. I've made money from acting. Um, but I think 
I'm also a, a giving person and I want to try and give back to my community, give back to people. And I think that me making it a nonprofit allowed me to find a way to give back, um, you know, to society and, and to people by offering that service and, and not charging anything for it. Yeah. I mean, you've clearly pursued a doctorate in that field and it required not only a time investment, but some financial investment, which is a pretty, pretty big leap of faith uh, to say that that's not going to be your main income stream. Um, what made you, was it just that passionate for you that you, you needed to pursue that all the way to the end? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of, and I think probably most people in the world would agree that it's one of the most fascinating and unknown things in the world. And I, I've always had a passion for it and wanted to find out more about it. So it, it drove me to want to, uh, I'm a man, uh, again, I'm very passionate about the things I do. And when I'm passionate, I tend to study it. I tend to really look into it and try to pursue it further than most people do. Because um, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a huge Ghostbusters fan. I joke that uh, I was really inspired somewhat by Ghostbusters, and I believe that that's true. Um, and I have friends that are Ghostbusters fans, and, you know, they built their own proton packs. They, they <laughs> spent tons of money on it. Um, they've done a lot of stuff. And I joke and say, yeah, I got my PhD in parapsychology. And they'll be like, well, I'm not that much of a fan. You know, like I wouldn't put that much time into it. Yeah, and but... I'm like, well, that's something I wanted to do. So <laughs> that's awesome. So you've got the you've got the degree that Venkman had, but you get to play with all the cool toys that like Egon got to play with. I can see you out there with all of your uh, meters and digital reading technology, and uh, you know all that kind of stuff. So that's that's pretty badass. Um, clearly there are those people out there in that industry that are that are just nut jobs, right? They're just out there either to exploit something for the sake of exploiting it, or they're just trying to kind of cash in on a trend. You created a YouTube channel in a series called The Real, quote-unquote, Paranormal Detectives, clearly a dig at the Paranormal Detectives, which was, you know, kind of debunked back in the day. But how do you respond to those that you know are just just complete and utter garbage? Um, I keep my distance most of the time, uh, because again, I, I am in a pursuit of knowledge and truth. Mm -hmm. And I think when you convolute that with money or fame, that, that it loses, it loses the, the actual interest and, and legitimacy when you do that. So most of the time I keep my distance, a funny story. Uh, I, I won't mention the show just, just out of, uh, not causing any drama, but there was a huge TV show that I was able to catch because I'm an audio guy. I caught that all their EVPs were sounded very similar in tone. Now, doing this for years, EVPs don't ever, you'll never find two EVPs that sound alike. Uh, and, I know what that is, but if you can define EVP oh, yes, for the course. audience, yeah. That means electronic voice phenomenon. When you capture a voice that uh, wasn't there originally, you usually catch it later when you're reviewing the audio. Electronic voice phenomenon, that's what EVP stands yep. for. So a very famous TV show, uh, which I didn't really watch at the time, but I think it was Christmas Eve. We were at my family's house and there was a marathon. I was like, you know what? Let me sit down and watch this show. And I'm watching and I'm watching episode after episode. And I'm like, they're being a little crazy and ridiculous. But why do those EVPs all sound the same? I never heard an EVP sound alike in, in my 20 plus years of doing this. And, uh, and I actually, because I was known in the, I'm known in the field, uh, I mentioned it to somebody that somebody knew people on the show. And then the next season they started changing the EVP. So they started sounding <laughs> different. So I, I didn't realize my reach was that far until I, I heard about it and I had other people tell me about it. So that's pretty crazy. You, uh, unknowingly altered the course of their, uh, programming structure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's awesome, dude. Uh, you know, this uh, team that you've put together as well, I think it's it's probably worth giving them a shout out because you do work with some pretty awesome people. So who are yeah. they? Uh, yeah, it's definitely very much a family. Uh, me and my best friend started the group together. Uh, another one of my best friends in college joined. And uh, if they're not family, we actually call them chosen family. That's our kind of nickname for people who they're not blood related, but they're that close. Uh, my wife is a part of it uh, as well. Um, my younger brothers are medium. Uh, my wife's cousin is our tech guy. So yeah, we're, we're all family. Uh, Adam Catabona is my co-founder. He's currently serving in the United States Air Force in Oklahoma. So we're, we're a little distant, but we're still very close. 
my other friend lives not very far from me. He was like the really third guy who helped us really establish our group. Uh, German Sanchez, great guy. He does. Um, he's another film and audio guy, so he's very technical as well uh, as I am too. Uh, Eddie um, Benuelos is my wife's cousin. Um, super, uh, you know, well-structured tech guy. He installs security systems. He knows all about electrical stuff, and and he really helps on the technical side on cases when it's like, hey, that might actually be wiring in a wall that's causing that reading from the meter and stuff like that. So. Uh, he definitely helps us on that aspect of it. My wife is Native American, indigenous, and so she definitely is much more on the spiritual side of things, but she also knows the equipment. Uh, she's a photographer, so her skills definitely come in handy with, oh, right with on. the uh, visual stuff. Um, my younger brother really is the medium of the team, so he directly communicates with the other side when we're on cases. And to test the scientific and the spiritual, what we do is we keep my brother away from the location and all the information until the actual investigation so we can test his abilities and make them seem more legitimate by not keep not bringing them into the information before uh, we do the investigation. So sure, yeah, because you know even subliminal exposure it can easily jump into your mind and cause the brain to do its own investigation without you even knowing about it. So that's uh, yeah, yeah, good, <laughs> good call on that. So yeah, and on another level too, we all call ourselves skeptical believers because everyone on the team has had an experience. We believe, but we know that when we go into a case, it will not do it justice if we automatically say that it's something before we test the scientific method out and see if we can find a natural cause for it. So we go in skeptically always because we think that'll get the best results rather than going in and creating the idea that, oh, it's something. Oh, that noise was something. No, no, let's investigate. Let's find out what that is first and then we'll determine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the scientific uh, method is in order to prove something, you've got to try to disprove it. I mean, that's just and if you can't disprove it, more or less, you're on the path to proving it. So how often are you guys getting... I don't know if work is the right word because you don't really take income out of it, but how often are you going out on jobs or, or going in and investigating? Uh, well, because obviously the quarantine and COVID-19 right now, it's been extremely slow. Um, a lot of our lives have changed over the last few years. My wife's going to college on the other side of the state. My tech guy has a really uh, intense job right now. So uh, we go on cases every once in a while. The, the quarantine has completely cut off any cases. Uh, we talk with clients over the phone and email and try to help them from a distance right now. Uh, but yeah, there hasn't been a lot really lately. We'll see what happens when maybe if life goes back to any kind of normalcy, uh, whenever that happens, I'm sure we'll have more cases and, and be going out more often. Sure. Well, that's super epic. I am. Thank you for indulging me in that because it's, it's something that I am uh, also kind of always on that search for knowledge in you know, I, I am by default a very skeptical person in life. I pretty much question everything to the dismay of all my friends and family who have already made up their minds on one thing or another. And I'm that guy that says, I don't, it's not that I don't believe you, but have you really looked into that? Is that really how that is? Have you double checked your sources? Have, you know, have you talked to this guy or that guy? So, so I kind of always appreciate the, it's always the search to answer the unknown or the, unanswerable, which really at the heart of it is what religion originally tried to do was answer what's not answered. And I think there's, you know, that's just one element of it, but there's a lot of stuff in the world that needs investigating and thorough, you know, like Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut, but he's a, yep. a, a really fantastic author. And, and one theme in a lot of his books is that there's just not enough people searching for knowledge for the sake of having the knowledge I think people search for knowledge now to prove people right or wrong yes. as, as a means to an end in and of itself, rather than just basically share the knowledge. So people just know what the hell's going on in the world. But um, yeah. yeah, so I think that's super cool that you're going down an Avenue that's controversial and you're sticking to it yourself. And you're like, you know what, I'm just going to make this a passion project for life and help people out. I think that's super cool. Um, yeah. Switching yeah. gears though, let's talk about, you know, the uber cool side of what you do in the fantastic world of acting. Um, of course, you're, the role that is really prominent that I, I think people get a lot of buzz uh, about you is is from, you know, Ford versus Ferrari. 
uh, which is a great movie that I, I didn't think I was going to like because the name just sounds so, you know, they could have come up with a better name for it, right? <laughs> but it is what it yeah, is. Yeah, I've heard that from quite a few people, actually. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, and I didn't realize before I watched the movie that it really was an epic battle. I mean, it was... So the name is very unassuming, which I, again, we're talking about breaking that mold of perception. And then when I got into it, I was like, holy crap, this is really cool. And of course, the skeptic says, I better go look and make sure that was true or not true if I really want to pursue it. But so how did you end up uh, in that role? Yeah, so uh, basically I played, uh, the, the main role I played was a uh, pit crew for Ferrari during the main Le Mans race uh, in France. But I also played in a Ferrari factory worker uh, at the beginning of the movie when they went to Italy uh, to buy Ferrari. That was one of the things that was supposed to happen. Ford was uh, in, the, in the process of buying Ferrari at the time. Yep, and that uh, fell that apart. Shot <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I actually had not been doing a lot of acting for about five years. I was actually focusing more on stand-up comedy and my music. And uh, I was working a job that I hated for 10 years. Literally, the day I decided to quit my job, a day later, I get a random call that they found me on LA Casting. Um, and they said, I look very Italian. My name's very Italian. And uh, <laughs> I like to be part of this period film. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. That's great. And then they kept calling me back. Do you speak Italian? Yeah, I speak it fluently. Great. Do you know about cars? Yeah, I actually have done quite a bit of work on my own car. I'm pretty familiar with uh, you know technical stuff on my car. So okay, that's great. Uh, we're going to probably have you more featured and, and do some more, you know, stuff with, you know, that's more prominent in the movie. And I'm like, oh, great. Sounds cool. So I went for my fitting, all that stuff. It was fantastic. First two weeks of shooting went in, got, ended up doing a, a big scene with John Bernthal. That was the Ferrari factory scene where he yeah. comes in and I'm assembling the engine uh, block. Um, the final guy on the assembly line and me and John Bernthal have that interaction. And uh, I was I was definitely going to be featured, but I didn't know that day that I was going to be that featured. It was just kind of random. They were like, OK, uh, we're going to have you interact with John. So James Mangold came out and like actually directed me. Uh, me and John Bernthal talked about how we wanted to do the scene. And, you know, for, for somewhat of a young actor, I've done a few big things on TV here and there. Uh, but that was on a this was on a so much larger scale than I've ever done before. Uh, internally, I was freaking out. Like, <laughs> what is happening? I'm getting all my SAG vouchers. I'm eligible to join the Screen Actors Guild now. Yeah. And You're I'm hanging out with the Punisher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just chatting with the Punisher. Like, you know, yeah, it's nothing. Cool. Figuring out how we're going to do the scene. Um, <laughs> so we did it, and uh, I was just very professional. Like I said, internally, I was freaking out. But I said, you know what? This is a big opportunity. It's time for you, Jean-Pierre. you got to be professional. You know, handle it and do it. And I did. We shot a bunch of the takes and uh, they loved it. I got a compliment from James Mangold and the ADs. Everybody knew my name that day. It was crazy. Like it was just all the stuff that went down. Um, so yeah, I left, definitely left set that day. Kind of like, wow, like what is happening in my life? This was like one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Um, so I shot for two, first two weeks out here in LA. And then uh, there was a couple weeks that I quit my job, wasn't working, doing anything. And then I get a call from casting. They're like, hey, do you want to come back and do another month and a half of shooting for the Le Mans race? You'll be one of the uh, pit crew for Ferrari. Yeah, sure. Great. So, yeah, I ended up going back um, and shot for another month and a half where we, you know, when the cars pitted, we filled them up with gas, did all that kind of stuff. Uh, I did stuff with Matt Damon, like he stole our stopwatch and we were freaking out <laughs> in the background when he stole it. We couldn't find it, um, you know, and I got to work with, you know, Chris, again, alongside Christian Bale and Matt Damon and. And just to be there and be so close to proximity to these huge stars and just to be thought of as one of the cast, you know, everybody knew my name again. They were always calling me, jump here. When Matt Damon does this, we want you to do this. And you're just like, yeah, this is amazing. And the fact that it was a period piece, you could tell they put time to everything they did in this movie. They built a huge set, like the stands and the pits um, out in closer to like this Valencia area. Okay. in the middle of nowhere on this old airstrip. Um, I mean, and just to be part of that, it, it was amazing. We all knew on set from day one that this was going to be a special movie. There's, there's, it doesn't happen every time when you're filming, but sometimes you find that, that, that perfect mix. You step on a set and you're like, I'm part of something special. Like, I feel like this is going to be big. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it was just, for me, an amazing experience. Uh, and it, it gave me a lot of confidence as an actor and I got so much more work after, after doing that movie. So yeah. What else did that lead to then? Um, I was actually working at the queen Mary for their Halloween event, dark Harbor. <laughs> I actually was cast as one of the main 
characters for the maze that the maze is based on. And uh, it was sad because I was really excited to work that event. But I got called to do that month and a half of shooting during the month and a half that I would have been working at Dark Harbor. Yeah. So I, I, I contacted them very worried because I said, hey, I'm going to be shoot on set Monday through Friday. I could probably only come and work the event on weekends. And I really thought they were just going to fire me on the spot. Uh, instead, they congratulated me and said, we really love you to work weekends. So, man, that was a very difficult time for me. I barely got any sleep Monday through Friday on set, Saturday, Sunday, late nights working at Dark Harbor. Um, but it was amazing. And the fact that they knew I was a serious actor, the next year I did all the commercials. I was on merchandise uh, and everything for that event. It was crazy to think like I was sitting there watching a YouTube video and my commercial popped up and I see my face and I hear my voice and I'm just like, yo, like this is really happening. Like I really turned my life into something that I wanted and I made it happen. So, uh, it, you know, and then I did other TV shows before COVID hit. And I really was doing a lot of stuff. And then all of a sudden COVID hit, Hollywood shut down. Yeah. So literally, um, it looks like in the fall, a lot of the gigs I was supposed to do and films and jobs are happening again. So by August, September, it looks like I should be busy on, on sets again. So we'll see if that all works out. Well, that's awesome. And you mentioned that you got all your SAG credentials, which I think a lot of people don't really understand that, you know, the the Screen Actors Guild basically has a lot of pull in what jobs you can get and what people you can work with. So can you kind of give everybody a rundown on how that works? Yeah, definitely. Well, let me start with as a young actor, you you find SAG and how to get SAG vouchers very mysterious because if you don't get a certain amount of lines, you won't get a SAG voucher. It has to almost be by luck or chance that you get on a project that's all SAG and they'll give you SAG vouchers. That's kind of what happened to me. So first of all, it's a mystery. But then, yes, once you are able to attain SAG status, it's like three grand to join. So first of all, you have to pay to get in even when you're, you get your vouchers and you're able to actually join the Screen Actors Guild. And then if you don't know how to operate in, and maneuver in the business, it can really severely limit your work because the union has so has so strict rules that you can only work on certain projects if you're not part of certain unions that, that work together. And, and yeah, so it's, it's really a complex like thing when you're in the union. So I haven't, I haven't joined the union yet. I didn't have the money at the time and I didn't want to spend all the money I made on the movie <laughs> just on the, on, on the, uh, on joining the union. Uh, plus there's more non-union work available. And you can get better, more prominent featured roles non-union wise. And that's and, a relatively uh, recent development, though, because for a long time you couldn't get work. It was that that catch twenty two, right? It's like because I went with uh, uh, at one point trying to get into the Screenwriters Guild, and it was that yeah. catch twenty two of well, you can't become an official member unless you're already on a job, but then you can't get the job because you're not a member. So then you have to go work with the non-membership group, but then you're kind of like, well, why did you work with those guys? You're like, I don't know where to go with this. And and that's, uh, that's what I kind of learned. That was the lesson I learned before versus Ferrari. Um, when you keep pursuing it, there's going to be a point that somebody who is, is on a union project wants you. And that's what happened with me. They wanted me so bad. They didn't care. They didn't question anything. They were just like, here's your sack vouchers. We want you. That was it. So really, it, it's more about sticking to your guns and those opportunities present themselves. Because um, if you audition for a SAG project and you're not SAG, if they want you, they will they will give you a big enough um, payment so you can pay for your entry into to the Screen Actors Guild and also get paid for the work. So uh, it's, it's kind of like that. It's kinda, it, it was mysterious to me as a young person, but I really figured it out now. Like you just have to just go for it and things surprise you. You know, like I know there was there was older actors that were part of the Screen Actors Guild on set with me and they were shocked when they found out I got a SAG voucher for my fitting. I got SAG vouchers for everything I did the first two weeks of that movie and they were shocked. They were like, <laughs> literally in three days I had all my vouchers and that like never happened. So people were just like, wait, they give you one for your fitting too? And I was like, yeah, I got I got all SAG vouchers. Like, I got hooked a ton up, of bro. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> No, that's awesome, dude. I, so I would assume, I mean, maybe incorrectly, but the probably finances from that role probably helped finance some of your other passion projects. Am I right? 
Yeah, it was great. I didn't, I honestly, I, I, I want to say till the next, I, I, I shot in 2018. That's when we shot that, that movie. And pretty much it was in the fall and I didn't work the rest of the year. I actually spent time, um, uh, learning my skills better, uh, my mixing and mastering, perfecting that and getting better at mixing and mastering my music. Uh, you know, just getting better engineering my music and stuff like that since I do it all on my own. Um, so yeah, I was able to just do that, take DJ gigs on the side, Christmas parties, weddings, things like that. Um, and then the rest of the time, just, yeah, work on my passion, you know, get stuff done, get the music video shot and, and put out there, get the album released. And yeah, I just basically worked on my passions for a while, which was nice. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. I mean, you know, you got to take advantage of those opportunities when they present themselves, but it sounds like you didn't squander it, right? You had already in the back of your mind, things that you knew you wanted to work on, things that you knew you wanted to accomplish. And you said, I'm just going to make this work, especially now, given all these crazy situations. You know, it's awesome that you were able to kind of get that stuff more or less in motion before the S hit the fan, right? Yeah, no, completely true. And and that was the thing, the greatest thing I ever did. And I'll tell you and be completely honest with you. I was terrified when I quit my job. Sure. Because there was no guarantee I was going to get the call back for Ford versus Ferrari. I had heard rumors on set that they were going to call us back, but nothing concrete. My wife, it caused problems with my marriage too, because I was Mr. Responsible before that point. I paid all the bills. I did all this stuff. And all of a sudden I went from working, having health benefits to nothing. Um, but it's weird. Everything just kind of fell into place and worked out. I got the finances I needed. I was able to work on passion projects. And the thing about leaving the security of the job was that, that fear pushed me further with, with my actual passion. I got stuff done. Instead of when I was working, I was so beaten and worn out from working that I was hard to work on music sometimes. I wanted to eat dinner, play some video games with friends, go to bed and do the routine the next day. Once I was out of that routine, like I had the time to actually calculate and plan out what I wanted to do with my passion. And I got stuff done. So it was like, yeah, it really changed how, how I worked and got stuff done. Yeah. So you took a leap of faith, which in and of itself is kind of a paranormal experience, right? You're uh, putting your, <laughs> putting all your cards out to the cosmos, you know, but you got the skills to back it up. I mean, there was, there was a reason for why it happened, regardless of if people know what that reason is, or even if you know what that reason is, it sounds like it was just kind of something that that was where the trajectory of your life had taken you. So now you've got acting under your belt. You've got music under your belt. You've got your super awesome doctorate in parapsychology under your belt. What are we going to see next from you? What can we look forward to seeing here in the very near future? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know music is going to be a very big thing for me. I could tell by the quality of the music I make now and the response I'm getting from the music. So I think music is going to take a prominent role in my life, but uh, my dream and I've it's simple to me. It may not be simple to most. I just want to do what I love and make it my full career to wake up every day, whether it's being in the studio, making music, whether it's being on set acting, whether it's stand up comedy. Um, really, I think I just want to build myself. And that's the goal. I don't really care about recognition and awards. I just want to do what I love and be happy every day of my life with, with the stuff that I do. And that's, that's really the main thing for me. Awesome. And what advice do you have for people who are out there in the world, maybe towing that fine line between I want to be the responsible guy, but I've got a dream I want to chase? What do you say to them? I say just do it. You never know what can happen. Let, let me say it like this. In re and COVID-19 proved this. Life is always unpredictable and unknown. You could lose your job. You could lose your income. You could lose all that stuff anytime. Why not make that choice for yourself? It can happen anyway. Why? Because uh, I think Jim Carrey probably said it best with his father. His father wanted to be an entertainer, but he took an accounting job because he wanted to take care of his family. And he lost that job. And Jim Carrey realized you can do something you hate and still fail at it. So why not try and fail real big instead <laughs> of fail at things you hate? So I, I think that's the best way to say it. I love that, that quote. Um, just do it. I did it. It was scary. It wasn't easy, but the satisfaction I have from life, I can tell you it never came from a paycheck once in my life. Everything I'm doing right now, I'm doing for me. And wow, I, I can't describe to you how that feels. Oh, that's epic, brother. If people want to reach out to you or find you on the interwebs or stalk you on social media, 
Where do they find you? All right. So my main website is mcpierre.com. That's www. the letter M, the letter C, P-I-E-R-R-E.com. And I have prominently displayed my music, but you can find my stand-up comedy, my paranormal, and my social media on there, all my stuff. And my social media handles are at talented. That's talented with the extra ED because I do so much. That's kind of my brand. That's what I created. That's my name of my studio, home recording studio. And all that stuff is talented. So at talented, you can find me on social media, follow me and see what I'm up to. And then if you're interested in the paranormal, just the paranormal, that's paranormaldetectives.org, paranormaldetectives.org. Awesome. Uh, dude, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. This has been not only entertaining and awesome, but actually eye-opening and enlightening as well. It's uh, always cool to kind of get into the inner workings of people's brains. And I know that you've got a lot more kind of in your past and in your history that really makes you who you are. And I'd like to have you back on the show someday to really kind of dig into that stuff. But that's a whole other rabbit hole that we can go down with that stuff. So I'm sure sure you know where we're going with that. So uh, Jean-Pierre Gignoli, thank you so much for hanging out with me today on Misery Point Radio. And I look forward to talking to you again in the very near future. And congratulations on your upcoming music projects as well. All right. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Had a great time. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I had a blast as well, and I hope that all of you out there in podcast and radio land had an equally awesome time hanging out with us today on Misery Point Radio. Do yourselves a favor, support Jean-Pierre by going to all of his social media platforms and give him a like, a follow, and a share, and check out his website to see all the awesome stuff he has to offer to the universe. And of course, if you're feeling generous, do the same for me here on Misery Point Radio. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Make sure you like the pages and share them with the world, please. And subscribe to the show on your favorite platform, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and wherever podcasts are found. Feel free to reach out via email if you got a question, a comment, or a deep burning desire. Let me have it at miserypointradio at gmail.com. Special thanks to Steve Joyner and the SJ Network for helping to hook this up. Always appreciate you, Steve. One of the hardest working publicists out there, I tell you what. So thanks again for being you and supporting the arts, and I'll talk to you next time on Misery Point Radio. Misery Point Radio.